Welcome to the Madison Story Slam podcast. I'm your host, Adam Rosted. You're listening to a Story Slam episode where we get together and tell a bunch of crazy stories based on a theme. Our theme during this episode was humiliation. You're going to hear a bunch of great stories from great storytellers about times that they have done things that they weren't too proud of or maybe they were embarrassed by. Hey, next month, February 20th, is our next Story Slam. The theme will be road trips as chosen by the audience from this Story Slam. Up first on this recording, we've got a great story about the German language from Emily Forscher. Hello. My story this evening is called Gedemütigt. When I was 20 years old, I moved to Germany for a deep immersion language program, and I almost immediately figured out that learning a language as an adult is a nonstop parade of humiliation. You never have the words that you need to express yourself adequately. And on the off chance that you can cobble a sentence together, it's inevitably slang for something unspeakable. For example, there was the time I told my German housemates, please, being careful, this paper, she is fragile. Please, do not have sex with it. (laughs) Even something as simple as ordering breakfast became a linguistic obstacle course. Yes, good morning. Yes, I would very much liking that vagina of bread there. No, no, not that vagina. This vagina standing next. Thank you. The sudden barks of laughter, the explanation that you only understand half of, the overwhelming urge to move into a cave and never talk to anybody again. It becomes difficult to say anything at all in the new language because you never know which sentence will contain your next humiliation. When you're learning a language as an adult, your entire personality gets stripped away. You're so focused on trying to understand and respond to what's happening that you can't joke, you can't be spontaneous. And German, with its three genders, four cases, endless declinations, countless exceptions, was specifically engineered to strip away as much of your personality as possible. (laughs) When it takes you a full minute to stumble through I give the teacher an apple, then actually conducting enough conversation to befriend anybody is just out of the question. As such, my uh, German housemates regarded me as something of an exotic pet. (laughs) Tiny, fluttering, weirdly excited by strange foods. Constantly, accidentally saying bizarre sexual things. (laughs) Amusing, absolutely. Entertaining, certainly. But a real person that you could be friends with? No. It was really difficult being so isolated in such a small space. But there I was. I mean, I did have my own room, but how much solace can you even find in a space where the bed touches both walls? Even nighttime offered little relief. 
as I was uh, subject to that apparently international phenomenon of the horrible college experience, neighbor sex noises. <laughs> oh, yes. Always right as I was drifting off, pounding through the wall as though amplified by expensive stereo equipment. My neighbor with her rhythmic shrieks and squeals. Hearing her boyfriend, while no less repulsive, was at least a sign it was almost over. I very quickly learned to dread the sight of his huge clunky shoes outside of her door, knowing that he was visiting. And it's not like she didn't know what she was doing either. Late one night, I was sobbing on the phone with my mother when I answered a little knock at my door. Could you please telephone a little more quietly? The walls here are just so thin. Lacking the vocabulary to tell her where to stick her request, I sublimated all my rage into learning prepositions. I throw a boot against the wall. I, I think about killing her with a stick. My only consolation came inventing to other German learners. Together, we could speak as slowly and stupidly as we wanted without any fear of embarrassment. So, coming home from the movies one night, I ran into my Somali housemate outside of the unisex bathroom. I had just seen Harry Potter a full day before its American release, and I was excited to share. He was endlessly patient, and he listened to my halting, bizarre description of the movie. And then he smiled and said, now you have seen of the good film and can sleep happy. <laughs> and I said, no, no, that is not a thing what happened can. <laughs> the neighbor boyfriend, the neighbor boyfriend shoes I am seeing. <laughs> the boyfriend shoes I am seeing at the door. My preposition work was paying off. <laughs> but my Somali housemate was confused. He said, why? Why the shoes meaning sad? <laughs> and I said, well, the neighbor and the boyfriend, they... I, I had only ever used sexual phrases by accident. <laughs> and I couldn't remember any of them. And so I closed my eyes and explained as best I could. And he laughed in the best way possible. He laughed in a way that showed me that he understood me. <laughs> and not only that, he understood how I was feeling, savoring this perfect moment of human connection. I opened my eyes to see my neighbor emerging from the unisex bathroom. My German housemates found me in the communal kitchen in a fetal position in the corner pet was clearly upset. And so they did their best to understand. 
German has an exciting variety of words for every type of humiliation, but I didn't know any of them. (laughs) All I could do was repeat, wailing, it is bad, the thing that happened. (laughs) She is hearing, it is bad, the thing, it is bad. Consolation, as it turns out, requires understanding. And so when I ran out of words to give them, they left me alone. I skulked back to my room, and ignoring the squeals pounding through the wall, I found my dictionary and leafed through, and there it was. Abased, mortified, brought low, gedemutished. That was very good. That's a very good story. That's a good opener right there. Gets the juices flowing. Like your neighbors. <laughs> Next up, we've got uh, a guy who has told many stories here. One is about a time he and his friend tried to poop on his other friend. Please put your hands together for Tom Schmidt. Hi. Um, <laughs> uh, 1967. It'll take me back a while. Um, anyway, I uh, uh, had an incident with that involves my parents and uh, uh, a woman that I was with. And uh, so the, the situation started with my sister uh, indicating to my parents that she was going to spend the night at a particular friend's house. And uh, my sister oftentimes was uh, in trouble with my parents, so they questioned her quite often. So anyway, Marcia did not uh, go to her friend's house like she had indicated, and my parents called to check. And it turned out that my parents figured out for some reason that I would know where my sister was. So they drove over to my apartment, and my uh, roommate answered the door uh, in his white underwear and <laughs> indicated that, uh, my, that I was over at a particular apartment, which was next door. So my parents went over to that apartment and the roommate of this woman that I was with answered the door and had no idea that I was there. Uh, but my parents noticed a, my jacket, which had a particular uh, emblem on it that was rather, uh, I mean, it was unique. So they immediately, having seen this jacket laying on the couch, busted into the Uh, apartment and started going through all the rooms (laughs) looking for me and they found me uh, in bed with this woman and they started hollering 
and making all kinds of noise, and I woke up, and one of the things I heard was, who is this woman? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) And this woman kept her head down and did not indicate that she was alive. (laughs) And I, you know, got got out of the sack. And, you know, at that time, this woman and I were not having any relations other than the fact that at that time, I think what was happening is there was a curfew on in Milwaukee because of the, the, the uh, uh, civil rights riots that were taking place. So the city was under curfew, and I, I'm pretty sure that that was the case. And, and I happened to be at that apartment that night, and, well, Lynn and I, or this woman, I mean, let's use the... <laughs> this woman and I got into bed with each other with our, all of our clothes on because we had not had any relations that at that time with each other. And uh, uh, so I, anyway, I, I indicated I didn't know who this woman was. And I got out of, out of the sack, and, and sure enough, you know, I mean, I was in totally clothed. And my parents were just screaming and hollering, and, you know, this, what, this whorehouse, I'm calling the cops, and, and what the hell are you doing? And I don't, I don't remember everything they even said. But it was on the third floor of this particular apartment. And as they were going down the stairs, hollering up at me, I was hollering down at them, you know, it's okay, you know, I'm, I've got my clothes on and all this and other nonsense and stuff. And uh, anyway, uh, this woman uh, with her head down uh, is my wife. And, <laughs> and we've been married for 47 years. And, uh, and, and shortly thereafter, we started doing things with each other uh, for about two years prior to getting married. And so, it, you know, it worked out pretty good. But I, I never told my parents who this woman was. And, and my parents are gone now. So anyway, that, that's my story. Uh, my sister was always in trouble, so it didn't matter what the hell happened with her. <laughs> but she's, she's doing good now. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Uh, our next storyteller uh, is not a mouse. She's never told a story here before, but her name is Minnie, and her last name is... Uh, remind me, where are you at? Miss Kinnon. Minnie Miss Kinnon, put it together. Close enough. Well, my story involves the intersection of professional waiting advice and SBDs. I worked at Ovens of Brittany. Maybe some of you guys have been to Ovens of Brittany if you've been in Madison for a long time. Love that place. It was like a family. And I worked at the one on Fordham Avenue, which was very close. Yeah, woohoo. Who said that? Awesome. So we so we had a lot of people come over from the neighborhood, like there were high rises, and then there was also Maple Bluff. Um, really ritzy part of town. 
and we'd call the, the people who came from Maple Bluff, Bluffers, and they had a particular kind of ownership of the place. Like, yes, I am going to sit here and have a Diet Coke and a morning bun and, and waste three hours of your life. Uh, and I will leave a 25-cent tip. The, the, so we had, so we, if they uh, stayed a long time, overstayed their welcome, we called them campers. So they could be camping bluffers. So I had a particular strategy that I thought was pretty good for how to get rid of campers. You always, you, 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 you carry yourself with dignity when, when walking through the, you know, through the uh, restaurant, but ever so slightly leave a silent but deadly fart very close to the camper. Because very few things will change a mood like airborne feces. It, it, people just decide, you know what? I don't think I want to stay here any longer. <laughs> So that was my strategy, and I used it a lot, and I used it well. <laughs> and it was my secret, and I had awesome turnaround. If I could snap, I would. Say, I, I had turnaround, and that's what you have to do in waiting. You have to get people in, you have to get them out, you have to get them eating as much. Anyway, so I had turnaround, and and I it was my own secret for the longest time, my own deadly weapon. <laughs> But one of my friends that I was working with asked me how I could get the bluffers to leave so effectively. So I shared it with her. And I said, I just fart in their general direction, just (laughs) quietly. And she thought it was hilarious. And it turned into a thing where everyone was sharing this in the wait station. And it became everyone's deadly weapon. (laughs) And... My manager heard about it. And she had to sit me down and reprimand me for farting at the customers. And I felt for her. I feel for her not, and even now more. I mean, at that point, I was very immature and uh, was just pissy. You know, just like, you don't own me. You're not the boss of me. Oh, yes, you are. Okay, that's right. Oh, but I, uh, yeah, she reprimanded me for farting, and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Minnie. I hate farting in front of other people. You wouldn't believe it if you talked to my wife, but I hate farting in front of other people. I, one of the most terrifying things to me is, uh, I, so I used to work for a vending machine company here in town. So I counted their d- money. Uh, so I was in a vault. I was counting single dollar bills and quarters, like one at a time. It was horrible. There's a room about the, a little bit, probably about the size of the inside of the kitchen. Uh, you know, it's a vault. It's steel and cement, basically, or not cement, but steel and brick, mortar, whatever. It was horrible. It was me and this, uh, I don't know, 45-year-old woman. This was last year. And uh, one of the most like terrifying experiences I ever had was, th- this is a poorly ventilated vault, and I've got to fart all of a sudden. Like, and, I, and I knew that it wasn't going to be like, uh, I can get away with this fart, no problem. 
I knew it was going to be like, holy shit. <clears throat> That's right. And so as soon as I realized I needed to fart, and you know, you, we all do that thing where we got to fart and we're like, nope. And we kind of, well, right as I did that, I suddenly had to sneeze. There is nothing more terrifying than having to fart really bad and also having to sneeze in a closed room with one other person. It's horrible. Uh, next up uh, is somebody named Christina. You can start making your way up. Please put your hands together for Christina Vanna. Hey, what's up, Madison? Shit, it's fucking cold out there. Feels so good to be in here warm. Um, yeah, my, my story takes me back to last year. It was my first pride, my first gay pride. Um, not only was it was my, was my first gay pride, it was my first gay pride that I was going to be in the parade, which was amazing. Yeah. Um, at the time, I was uh, really, really part of the alternative lifestyle, and, and still am, and trying to get myself into a leather, like leather motorcycle club, basically. Um, it's a very hierarchy kind of thing to be able to work your way in. Lots of like community service when it comes to the alternative community that you got to put in. So military-ish borderline when it comes to just your ranks and where you're supposed to be fitting. So uh, it's, it was in Milwaukee, actually. My, the, the club that I was trying to get into was in Milwaukee. And uh, like I said, I, I, I don't know, for pride in general, I was always just on the fence about it because it was like, well, you know, I want acceptance as someone who lives an alternative lifestyle, but I also don't want to rub it in people's faces. But this was like the point in my life where I'm like, okay, I feel proud to be who I am. I'm going to do this. Like, this is going to happen. So, nervous as shit. Like, I got docked up, like, in black because that's what he, like, our leader of our, leader of our group wanted to be us, all of us to be in black with boots. Very formal. Um, but, yeah, I, I wanted to bring a little bit more to the table. So, I had these, like, cute little, like, rainbow balls, essentially. They look like little uh, alien balls. And, you know, I get there and, you know, I'm feeling super nervous just because, like, I'm kind of the grunt, you know. I'm the, the bottom of the barrel. And I'm not talking to really anybody except the people that have kind of, like, pushed me to be a part of this group. And the leader of the group, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of giving me this look, like, from the other side of the bar. We were at the Harbor Room in Milwaukee, a gay leather bar, just amazing, amazing place. And... uh I could, I could tell he was talking about me, like, and, you know, I'm, he's just a very handsome man, and I'm already getting a little bit, like, embarrassed, like, oh, like, he's actually looking at me, like, this is, like, insane. So he comes up to me, and he's like, all right, Grunt, like, you get the best job of all in the Pride Parade, and I'm like, what's going on? So he hands me a power saw, and this power saw has a dildo attached to the power saw. First time I had ever seen anything like this before. He hands it to me. He's like, you're going to carry this in the parade. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> so here I got this power saw, which is essentially, it looks like a gun. Like the thing is like, I'm holding it. It's got a trigger, big pink fucking dildo coming off it. 
I'm like, holy shit, like, this is, this is happening, like, I'm, what the fuck? Like, okay, so anyway, sorry for my appropriate language. We start to walk to the pride parade, a couple blocks away, and I'm walking, and I'm kind of, you know, I'm just kind of doing, kind of one of these kind of things, you know, because I'm like, oh, I just don't want anyone to even see this thing yet. And, uh, of course, you know, right on the entrance into the Pride Parade, there's all these police officers. So, you know, I'm just, I immediately went from, like, this side to, like, okay, like, okay I'm going to put it over here. <laughs> so, you know, we get in. Luckily, no cops are, like, wondering what this thing is. Like, I, I'm thinking to myself, there's kids here. Like, is this appropriate? So we get in formation, right? You know, we're in formation. And because I'm the grunt, I'm in the back completely without anyone else in my formation, completely alone. The whole leather group in front of me with flags is all in front of me, all in lines. And I'm sitting here, nobody beside me, and I'm just holding this fuck solid. <laughs> you know, and, and the parade starts, and it was expressed very, very clear to me that I had to mimic as much military formation as possible because... I mean, it's pride, and I mean, I'm feeling proud, and like, I'm holding the gun, you know? So, you know, I'm, we're, going down the, we're going down the road, you know, and I'm, and I'm just, you know, we basically, I just kind of had it like this, and anytime we'd stop, you know, I'd kind of quick throw it up on the shoulder. <laughs> Crowd's loving it, you know, just loving it. And uh, I remember, like, one of, the, one of the specific things I was told to do is when the pride parade stops you know, mack it up with the crowd a little bit, you know, Schwarzenegger. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. Like, I'll be like the coolest fucking kid there. So uh, I come up, you know, and we come to our first stop, and I'm holding it, and I throw it on the shoulder, and I'm sitting there. And then I hear from behind me, like, oh, Schwarzenegger it. And I'm like, okay, this is it. Like, I got to do it. So I pull it, and I pull the trigger, and dildo came off the saw. Little did I know, this thing is meant to be in somebody. It's not supposed to just be... Hundreds of people, this is the pride parade, I'm chasing this dildo down the road. Not knowing what I'm doing, I pick it up and I just kind of hold it against the saw and I'm like, okay, I'm good. I'm all good. And uh, I finished the parade and uh, I'd never felt so much pride. Thank you. Great. You, you know you're going to hear some shit when you do a thing called Madison Story Slam. But you never think... You just never think you're gonna. <laughs> oh, that was wonderful. Uh, um, Christina's last story was very different from that. I would say that's fair to say, right, Christina? Very different. And I would encourage you to go listen to it. Uh, you can find it on our podcast on the uh, Petrified uh, podcast. It was Story Slam Petrified. 
And uh, she told a story at the very end. It's about an hour in. And it's a really powerful story. It's really good. I would encourage you to, at least, if you're not going to listen to anything else, listen to that episode and listen to Christina on that. But again, Christina, this story killed it. That was amazing. <laughs> uh, our next storyteller is Janine Latis. I may give away a little bit of who Janine is. Janine came up to me and told me that she, she goes, I'm not from here. And I said, okay. Uh, and, and it's pretty common. Where are you from originally? Yes. Yeah. It's pretty common that like we've had people from Rockford come here. Somebody told me they were coming from uh, Appleton tonight. Is somebody here from Appleton? Yeah. So, so it's pretty common that people will come. But so I, so I said, oh, so where are you from? And she goes, I'm a nomad. Which is it not a, a common thing for somebody to say? Uh, Janine, you told me that you sold your house and you just go house it for people all over the country, and that's what you do. And so I think that's pretty cool. Once again, clap your hands for Janine Latis. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I sold my house, and I, I'm like, oh, fuck, I can live anywhere. So how do I choose where to live? So I house it. I house it around the country, and I try on this place in Pennsylvania where I made cheese, and then I try on this place in Seattle where I go to the uh, places where you buy things. So each place I go, I try something new, right? And so this is new. This is new for me. I've never been on stage like this, so be kind, okay? (laughs) So um, I have these two little really conflicting stories of humiliation uh, and the first one is I have a teenager. De facto humiliation, right? And she took my phone and she reprogrammed all of the, yeah, all of the autocorrects for me. <laughs> so, so the first thing she programmed was the word no. And so every time I would like type in the word no, it would type the word Pasta. So I, I'm, I'm a professional writer. I write for a living. And so I'm writing this email or this text to my editor, and he's like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I write back, no problem. <laughs> and he gets pasta problem. You know, this is like my boss. And so I'm, I'm having this conversation, like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. But so... More important is that she reprograms the word yes. And she reprograms the word yes to I love you. <laughs> yeah, so so I have this date. I go on this date and it's a good date. It's fine. Exactly. You guys are way ahead of me. So I go <laughs> I go on this date. And it's a good date. And then the second, you know, the next day he texts me and he goes like, that was a really good date. Would you like to go on another date? And I type, yes. And he's like, holy shit, right? So, so as quickly as I can, I'm like, you know, doing the thumb thing. Like, la, 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 really? My daughter just blah, blah, blah. Please don't freak out. And he writes back that I have bumped his blood pressure 20 points. And 
I don't know that it's like 20 points like, oh, thank God she loves me. Or 20 points like, holy shit, what a psychopath. <laughs> and so that's what, that's what, that's what uh, humiliation looks like now in my life. But I'm, gonna, I'm just going to just totally ruin your night, okay? Is it, things are going to go bam right now. Because there was a time in my life where humiliation looked a lot different. And so I was um, on a ski trip with this guy. He was a medical student, and I was a grad student, and so I was, like, de facto poor. And he was a um, trust fund baby, so he had the money. And so he had paid for our plane tickets, and he had paid for our hotel rooms, and he had paid for our ski trip. And we went skiing. And we skied, you know, and you're out in the ski, you're out in the, like, ah, and it's beautiful, and you drink beer, and it's kind of sunny. And so eventually, at some point, you're, you're like, like, dehydrated and crabby. And so, like, we go back to the hotel room, and we're tired and crabby. And at some point, I said the wrong thing. I said the wrong thing, and the first punch came up right into my gut. And as I went down, the second one hit me in the face. And so I've got a broken nose and I've got black eyes. And for three days, for three days, he's got the plane tickets. So he's like, you want to go? Because that's what abusers do, right? They control the money. And so for three days, I can't leave. I have to give sex to this guy. I got broken ribs. I got a busted face. And finally, finally, we get to the Denver airport. And I'm at the Denver airport, and, you know, I've got my, like, my head is way down. I'm like this, because if you talk to another guy, if you look at another guy, he's going to be with you with a finger in your chest, and you're, like, you know, scared as shit because he's going to do it again. And you know, So I've got my head down, and I'm sitting in this, this chair in the Denver airport, and there's this sound over the, you know, whatever. And they go, Janine Latis, gate 37 to the counter, please. And I'm like, so I go over to the counter. And I'm talking to the woman, and she moves over here. She moves over here. And so I have to turn in order to talk to her. And now my boyfriend's behind me. He's behind me. He cannot see my face. And she says to me, can we help you? And I said, oh, oh no. I just skied into a tree. And she goes, no, darling. We've all been there. We can put you on a later flight. We can take you away. We can pretend it's a security issue. What do you need? And I said... Oh, no, it's fine. Now, there's another little detail that I'm leaving out. About five miles away lived my Uncle Tony. And my Uncle Tony, he's an Uncle Tony. Right? If I'd have called Uncle Tony, my problem would have gone away. And I'm not saying that he would have made him go away. I'm saying he would have taken me away. I would have been safe. But I was too embarrassed 
to tell my Uncle Tony, and I was too embarrassed to tell the gate attendant. And so I get on this plane, and I'm walking, you know, walking up to the plane, and I show her my boarding pass, and she just grabs my fingers for a couple of minutes, just like, not minutes really, moments, like, you know, she just squeezes my fingers, and then I go get on the plane, and I've got the window seat, and I sit really, like, tight against the window, and my boyfriend sits next to me, and remember, my nose is broken, there's all this blood. And we go on the plane and we like take the runway and then the tension in the air changes. The air pressure changes. And everything in my head starts just exploding. And I want it my I want my eyes and my teeth to just burst out of my face because it hurts so incredibly bad. And my boyfriend says it's your eustachian tubes. If you would just yawn. And I'm like, yeah, if you didn't fucking hit me, then this wouldn't be happening. And we land. And we coast in. And he and I part ways. And I call my baby sister. My baby sister. The one I've always tried to take care of. The one I've always tried to protect. And I'm talking to her on the phone, and she says, you know, she saw this movie. And I say, well, I read this book. And she says, well, what about our cousin? And then, then I say, hey, he hit me. And she says, he what? And I'm like, yeah, really hard. I think my ribs are broken, my nose, i got black eyes. And she says to me, you broke up with him, right? And I go, no, it wasn't his fault. We were drunk. We were tired. It was, you know, I said the wrong thing. And she says to me, my baby sister says to me, are you going to wait until he kills you? And that was the most humiliating moment of my life. Thank you. Thank you so much, Janine. Remember at the beginning when I talked about how every now and then somebody opens up this part of their life that like just blows you away? That was an amazing story. Let's hear it again for Janine real quick. Thank you so much for opening up that part of your life. If that, if that resonates with you on a personal level... Um, we had somebody here who's here tonight who works at Days. Days is the Domestic Abuse Intervention Services. Uh, my wife in the kitchen also uh, volunteers over there. There, there are cards at the kitchen. So if that last story really touched you on a personal level, and I feel like you know what I mean when I say that, grab one of those cards and reach out and just talk to somebody and uh, get some help because it's out there for you. 
Remind me, it's Maria, right? Yeah, so put your hands together for Maria De La O. Alrighty, so this particular story is especially significant for me because I, for some odd reason, am freakishly good at remembering the exact dates that things happened on. And of course, it couldn't have been marketable in any way. It couldn't have helped me out in school when I was, you know, like history tests, anything. I, I can't remember any of that shit, you know, because God knows that that could have actually gotten me somewhere if I could have gotten better grades, blah, blah, blah. But I do remember, you know, dates if they have a personal meaning to me or just dates in my life. And so this was exactly. Exactly one year ago today, wind the clocks back, January 16th, 2015. So I went out uh, exactly a year ago, a couple hours after now, I went out to Mickey's Tavern. I don't know if y'all have been there. And um, you know what I'm talking about, yeah? And I'd, I'd really only ever gone there for one reason, and it was this guy. It was his band. Um, of course, it's this, you know, garage punk band. They don't even exist anymore because the bastard drummer, who's a bastard for a reason that I'll explain in a later story, not tonight, um, moved to San Francisco like a pussy. But anyway... <laughs> When they were still a band, um, you know, I went to go see him, and that was the reason why I went to Mickey's. It was the reason why I went to Crystal Corner and High Noon Saloon. And at this point, you know, we had the, the thing is, we had never even been officially together, boyfriend and girlfriend, Facebook official, blah, blah, blah. We dated, um, you know, on and off, and he always ended it whenever it was about to get serious because, you know, it wasn't even a thing where I could snap at him because sometimes he said it was related to his depression, and I have depression too, albeit not the same kind, but I couldn't, you know, I I feel like I couldn't be a total bitch about it. Oh, you know, you're fucking breaking up with me, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, he has depression. I'm I'm trying to be understanding because I've, you know, got my own problems. But this is a point where we had just recently become reacquainted, and I was just thrilled about that, just in itself. I was just so happy because I'd never met anyone like him. This was, you know, one of only a couple of guys that I've dated who didn't turn out to be abusive. Um, And so I just, but also he was just... I, I, the first time that I saw him, the first time we talked, met him, everything, I always felt like he was, you know, this is going to sound totally corny, but he was the perfect guy for me. Just everything about him, he was sweet, he was kind, he looked exactly, he wasn't, you know, perfect looking pretty boy, but he, to me, was, you know, the hottest guy in the world, whatever. So... We'd recently become, you know, starting to talk again, and I go out to Mickey's to see him, and I'd kind of had a bad feeling about it, but I just decided to go anyway, what the hell, and I get there, and I don't see him, so I'm, I sit down in a back room, I text him, you know, hey, I'm here, where are you, no response, no response, finally their guitarist, you know, comes into the back room, I wave to him, it was some shindig for his birthday that night, so I'm, you know, hey, happy birthday, whatever, and I ask him, where's Joe? Oh, Joe's in the other room, okay. So I go in the other room to see Joe standing with said bastard drummer against the back wall. And I'm, you know, hey, finally. And I'm I'm trying to put out of my mind he didn't respond to my text. Maybe he just didn't see it. We all get paranoid when people don't text us back. Maybe that's a chick thing. I don't know. But some of us do. And, um... Whatever, and so, I, but I see him, and he gives me this big bear hug, and he's like, wow, you look, you know, you look great, which he doesn't normally say that to me. He would text it to me after a date. He's a really shy guy, but he, he didn't even have the balls to ever be like, oh, you know, you look gorgeous in person. So for him to say, wow, you know, you look really nice, I'm feeling pretty good, well, thank you, so do you, you look awesome, you know. And then just a couple minutes later, I see he's kind, he kind of keeps checking his phone, which he didn't normally do. I'm getting the disinterested signals. And eventually, you know, 
he looks at his phone and says, oh, oh, I got to go. I'll be back. Oh, okay. You know, so I'm standing there. I don't really know anyone else there at that point. I, for some reason, except for my brother, he, my brother had showed up, not planned at all, you know, with his friends, we high-fived, hugged, whatever. He went to the back room, but I'm standing there, you know, I can see him. I love my brother. I, I absolutely love him, but I can, I can see him anytime. I came here to see this guy. And, you know, and I dressed all up. Um, I like to dress up, as you can tell. I wore this fucking blue velvet V. This Seriously, it was cut down to here. Like, tits out. Okay, guys? Like, smushed together. I'm, I'm putting it all up. I have my navel piercing showing. You know, I have my blue jewel navel barbell dangling. I got the tight skirt. It, it, basically, the, it was the look that I referred to as Princess Jasmine goes to the club. It's like this turquoise look, high ponytail, you know, flute. So I, I'm putting myself out there, whatever. I want to look nice for him and everything. And, um, you know, waiting and waiting. He's not coming back. And, and this... This goes on for like seriously like a straight hour, and his band was going to be the last to play. And I got there, you know, right when the first band was starting. So I'm just waiting and waiting. I finally go back with my brother. We talk. I text Joe, you know, hey, you know, I'm I'm in the you know in the back room. No response. So finally, when it gets to like the band right before his, I walk back out there and I see him. I'm I'm coming in the room this way, and I see him standing over by the jukebox over to the right. I don't even see his face. I just see his back. I see the height and that, like, Irish, shaggy, like, light brown hair that I just wanted to run my fingers through. Oh, my God. You know, and then I see this girl standing next to him, and I, I see, like, the backs of both of them. They're not touching. They're not holding hands. But, you know, you, sometimes you just know. You don't necessarily have to see people making out or whatever. You just see them, and you just, you know, you have this sense. I, I always have, anyway. And um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, everybody knows that. You know, I don't, I just like, I don't know words have to even be said. And I knew her name too. And I don't even want to say it because for me, and I, and then I feel bad feeling like a judgmental bitch because I don't want to be hating on other women, but it's just this, it's this, you know, it's this jealousy thing I, in my mind and I see her, I know her name and it's the most pretentious name that I've ever heard. It's this, I'm not going to say what it is, but to me, it's a misspelled insult to Greek mythology. And, um... <laughs> I see her at all these shows. She's always following the guys around. I kind of, I got a strong groupy vibe with her. And, um, you know, and I just see them together and I don't even have to, you know, be told anything. So finally, like the idiot that I am, I walk up to him and I'm like, hey, and it's just the most awkward moment. I'm standing there in this triangle here and she just, she doesn't even try to manage me. She just looks at me and I'm like, hey, so, you know, I was looking for you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was, uh, I was out. Oh, yeah. She looks at us like she's gathering that this is going to be a private conversation. She moseys away, finally. And um, I'm standing there. I'm trying to talk to him. Hey, you know, maybe, like, we never get to hang out anymore. You want to maybe get coffee next week? Like, oh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I start school again next week. But, yeah, I, I definitely will have some time. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. And then, again, he this super fucking condescending, like, pat on the shoulder. Oh, I got to go. And he, I'll be back though. And he like walks out the room and I'm just left standing there, bastard drummers like staring at me. And apparently his come hither look is the same as his, I want to kill you look. Cause I thought that the drummer hated me. I later find out, you know, he tries to cheat with his girlfriend on me by going on, uh, making a fucking account on plenty of fish. I mean, you couldn't have classed it up by going to OK Cupid, really. You're going to try to cheat on your girlfriend, go to fucking class your site. Anyway, his drummer's like staring at me and I'm just, I'm feeling so hated. I've never felt so alone. I feel like an idiot. I feel like every, you know, dumbass girl and every stupid rom-com. I'm a thriller girl. I like dramas. I like dark shit, but I, I, I try not to go for the rom-coms, but that's what I feel like. I feel like that chick, you know, I went out, I did this whole fucking revealing ass outfit, you know, out of my way to see this guy that 
I still have never been able to forget about. And so I proceed to torture myself because apparently I wasn't enough of a masochist just to, you know, go there. And I sit through his whole show. And before I can even make my way up to the front, I see this girl, the same girl he was standing with, you know, in what I would refer to as my spot, which is standing right in front of him, you know, the whole show. She's And she's rocking her head. She's headbanging. I'm like, I wish that, you know, I heard that the guitarist, the former guitarist from Evanescence had like problems with, you know, headbanging. He got seizures from it. I'm wishing that this would happen to this girl because I'm so fucking jealous and pissed. But no, there's no justice in the world. So, you know, I'm sitting there, you know, the whole time. And I'm, I'm standing there like in my revealing outfit, just feeling like total shit. And of course, you know, I wait till the end of the show and I like an idiot, go back up to him and, you know, I say, because I don't know what to say, you know, you sounded awesome. And I, and he did, he's, he's a great musician regardless, but, and he says, you know, thank you. And thanks for staying. Like, thanks so much. You know, he gives me this great bear hug again. I, you know, his scent is just like overwhelming and whatever. And I say, okay, well, you know, call me like you have my number, like this fucking tiny ass mouse. Oh, call me, call or text me. Oh yeah, I will. And I leave, and as I'm, you know, pulling away from Mickey's Tavern, I look back in the window, and I see that same petite, you know, elfish, black, donning girl, like, silhouetted right next to him where I was standing. She'd come, you know, come back up to him right after I left. And I think that the most humiliating part of this story is that I'm still not over it. It's a fucking year later, and I've barely had contact with the guy, and I'm still not over it. I still can't get over the guy. I've tried dating. I've tried dating websites, horror of horrors, and I still can't forget him, no matter how many times that he proceeded to break my heart in the most childish of ways. You know, I feel like he used his depression as a shield, never mind the fact that I have severe depression also. Um, I'm still not able to get over it. So for me, that's the most humiliating because I'm standing here right now telling you this story and I'm still wishing that he was right here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Our next storyteller is Vivian Anderson. Give it up. Okay, so I am in sixth grade, and I'm coming home from school one afternoon, and I'm a latchkey kid, so I lock the door, and I open the door, and it's like that World War II film where, like, the grizzled general's walking through the forest, and he's like, it's too quiet. <laughs> like, my dog's not running up to greet me and have throw that little party that your dog, like, throws at the end of the day when he finally gets to see you again. Like, my neighbor is mowing his lawn, and, like, when I step over the threshold of the door, like, like the cone of evil silence in the house, like, I can't even hear the, the, the lawnmower inside. Like, even the refrigerator's like, no, I'm not going to click on. It's too warm, but I'm not clicking on. And I walk into my house with this, like, sense or foreboding. And I go back to my bedroom, and I drop my bag. And I go into the kitchen to grab a snack, because if I am going to meet my doom, I'm at least going to be well-fed. <laughs> so I open up the refrigerator door, and I pull out the, the, the jug of milk, because, you know, male identified at birth. I'm going to drink right out of the container. And I look over, and I I lock eyes with my mother. And she's sitting at the dining room table. And I say I lock eyes with her, but, like, her soul is gone. Like, there are no eyes. It is just pure evil. And I'm saying this about my own mother. So, 
arrayed around her on the dining room table. She had, she had gone through, she had raided my room, and she had found my stash. Not my drugs. Um, she had found my bras and panties and skirts and blouses and all the things that made me feel like I was who I was supposed to be. And now I say that they're mine. Really, they were hers. And... You know, she wanted me to stop wearing them, and that was a reasonable request. But And I'm not going to go into the, how the next six hours went down, but you know, they involved words like, what kind of a freak are you? You're going to therapy. And all other sorts of really beautiful, wonderful experiences. So I endured that, and I made it into seventh grade. And during seventh grade, there were three things that happened to me. There was probably more than three, but three that are relevant for this evening. Uh, first, I got testosterone poisoning, uh, which led to the other two. I sprouted from about five foot nothing up to about six feet tall. Yay, that was a fun year. Uh, clothes that don't fit, just aching, gnawing pain, and the thought of being the six foot tall girl. That was good times. Um, and the other thing that happened is my voice dropped, and my voice dropped from being... Oh, roughly what you hear now, to being somewhere around James Earl Jones or, or Barry White. I mean, it was a great voice for a boy. For a boy, it was a fantastic voice. Uh, I had girlfriends who swooned over it, said it was the pure sex voice. When I was in college in 1990, um... <laughs> There was a girl who called me from Chicago to have phone sex with me. Like, my roommates couldn't figure that one out, and I just rolled with it. Um, <laughs> later, when I would become a pastor, like, I would be preaching, and there would not be a dry pew in the house. Unfortunately, it doesn't serve me well today. Uh, but at the end of the year, after having these three experiences, I looked in the, in the mirror one day and I realized that if I were to ever walk into the ladies' room at six feet tall, and I was still growing, at six feet tall with James Earl Jones's voice, that I knew in my heart of hearts that there was no way that I would ever be met with anything but just shrieks of horror and just pelting of handbags. And I knew, like, I knew I could never be who I was. And that led me to finding myself arrayed on my bed one afternoon uh, with, again, with my stash around me. It had been newly uh, acquired. Um, and I say my stash, like I, I stole it fair and square. It was mine. Um, <laughs> um, and I was sitting there uh, with an upturned wrist and an exacto knife. And it was one of those experiences you have where you're sort of disconnected from your body. And I felt myself like floating up above my body and looking down at myself. And I was crying. I was bawling. I was watching myself bawl. And I asked myself, I said, self, why are you crying? And the only answer I came up with was, I don't want to die. But in that moment... I also didn't know how to live because I knew I did not want to go through life being the person that the world was telling me that I had to be. 
And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't remember a whole lot of the rest of that conversation. I don't remember a whole lot of the rest of what went down. But what I do know is that I made a deal with myself. And the deal was that only half of me was going to die that day. That the part of me, that the best part of me, the part of me that was feminine and happy and joyful was going to get tied up and put in a box and buried at sea and never spoken to again. And I don't know exactly how that went down, but I do know that 33-year-old me could no longer keep up her end of the deal that she made with 15-year-old me. Thank you. Thank you, Vivian. This is the best story slam we have ever had. <laughs> for real, like, I've been doing this for three years or three or four years now. I've been coming for five years, coming to Story Slam for five years. <laughs> I'm exhausted. <laughs> Lots of naps. Uh, I've been coming to Story Slam for five years. I took over as host either three or four years ago. I don't quite remember. This is the best one I've been to. Put your hands together for Marty Sosnowski! Hello, Madison. They call me the Meat Man. I'm from Appleton, Wisconsin. I'm a photographer. Look at this great crowd. This is awesome. I think it's time for a selfie. I got to do this. I got to do this. Everybody promptly give me the finger, please. Come on. Give me the finger. There you go. Sweet. Awesome. I had to do that. All right, now, I'm not as polished as everyone else. I need notes. I've done a lot of drugs in my life, so I got I to gotta have notes, you guys. So... My story isn't so much about something embarrassing that happened to me. It's more of a humility story. It'd be, it would be easy for me to tell you the story about me playing hockey as a young little guy, six years old, sticking my tongue to the pipe in the middle of a game. That would be an easy story. <laughs> Standing on the chair, doing an air guitar solo at the senior beer party, peeing my pants. <laughs> easy story to tell. But I'm not going to tell I'm going to tell a story about something that happened to me. So a little background on the story is, I grew up in Wisconsin, worked in a factory for a while, got tired of that, decided to go to college, became a rock and roll photographer. Moved down to Cincinnati, got pretty good at what I did, working for a magazine in Cincinnati called Everybody's News. It was a weekly alternative news and music magazine. Got pretty well known for my photography, but my Wisconsin roots never left me too far. So hockey was always on my mind. I've always played hockey. Kind of saved my life, you know? A lot of drugs, hockey kind of counteracts some of that. <laughs> so I, got re I was living in northern Kentucky, which is just across the river from Cincinnati. It's much cheaper to live than Cincinnati, so that's where I was living, in the slums of Kentucky. Somebody finds out I'm from Wisconsin, I play hockey. So they recruit me into their youth hockey program to be a coach. So little did I know that I was going to enjoy this almost as much as I did rock and roll. So... 
a few years into this, I'm coaching this team. And I'm doing pretty good at coaching. I'm skating the hell out of these kids. But we're winning a lot of games. And, you know, I mean, at this point in my life, I've got the mohawk. i got a ponytail that I can stick in my back pocket. <laughs> my hair has been dyed every color of the rainbow. Most of my shows are punk shows and metal shows. That's kind of what I was all about. So I'm coaching this team. And one day, the people who are helping me I'm over to their house. They helped me out a lot. They kind of kept me in line. They fed me. They did. They gave me rides to the game, all this stuff. So I'm over to their house. We're going to a game in Louisville. Now, these are 13-year-olds, 12, 13-year-old peewees I'm coaching. I'm at their house. The Terry Honeybrink, I don't leave names out. I don't change names to protect the innocent. If you were there, it's, it's what it is. <laughs> so Terry Honeybrink is the hockey mom. She's making us breakfast, big stacks of pancakes. we got about three or four kids there. They stayed overnight so we can all ride to the game together. Breakfast is done. The, the kids are in the basement getting their gear ready. Her husband, Tom, he's out getting the van ready so we can all fit in there. Now, Terry, the mom, she usually didn't go with us on the road trips because three kids and stinky hockey bags in the car just isn't that attractive even to a hockey mom. So we're in the kitchen. I'm helping her clean up the pancakes. And all of a sudden, I look at her, and I can tell she's going to cry. You know, she's getting the tears, the dimple chin. There's no doubt she's going to start crying. And we're just standing there, and I'm like, Terry, what's the matter? And she's like, man, she goes, i got to get this off my chest. And I'm like, well, what? And she goes, well, do you remember about three years ago, I was, it, was, it was actually my first year of coaching hockey, and, and I was going to the hockey banquet. I have my assistant coach. We're walking into the banquet, and there's these three ladies walking behind me. And I remember this because they were kind of hot. You know, I'm not kidding. They were pretty hot hockey moms. And we're all about the same age. And I'm, I remember saying something to the assistant coach, like, ah, who the hell is that, you know? So we go, we go in, and we do our banquet, and we have a great time and all that. So she told me then that day in the kitchen that as she's walking up behind me, she proclaimed to her friends, she asked them who I was, and they told her that I was this photographer from Wisconsin who was coaching hockey. And she said... My son will never play hockey for that man, ever. Because she's a pretty conservative lady, to say the least. Very conservative lady. And she's standing in the kitchen. She's just bawling. And I'm like, Terry. And she told me this. And I'm like, what? And she goes, she goes I can't believe the valuable lessons that you've taught my son on how to be a man, how to work hard, how not to care about what other people think of you. And in this day and age now, with the political climate the way it is, I kind of really felt like this was a good story, you know? I mean, you know, they want to build walls, and they want to kick people out of the country, and, you know, I'm pretty sure that really didn't work for Germany. Pretty sure it didn't work for China either, you know? And, you know, now that it's been 25 years later... Terry Honeybrink and I are great friends. We talk all the time. I went down to city, down to Cincinnati for her son's wedding. It's, it's really become an unbelievable friendship. And I look back on that day, and I think, wow, that's really a day when I really became somebody. I really felt, you know, I'd struggled all my life to get that far. And I really felt like, finally, you know, the, I call this story the, the, the cover of the book because it's, it's one of those age-old stories that's been told from the beginning of time. Don't judge people just by who they are or what they look like or even what their story is. Listen to what they have to say. So in conclusion, I want to leave you. 
In conclusion, I want to leave you with a quote from my favorite band, The Negative Land. Shop as usual and avoid panic buying. Thank you. Thanks, Marty. I am honestly just blown away at how good this story slam has been. It's honestly, it's just been so good. And you guys have done such a good job of getting rid of beer for us. I don't want to take it home. Uh, so we'll have one more break, I think, before we end, and and uh, and you can polish off the beer for us. Uh, so our next storyteller, her name is Emmy. I think you've told a couple stories before. One? One time? So uh, please clap your hands in, in a rapid fashion for Emmy Giovanni. Hi, so my story is about rollerblading. Um, I got rollerblades the summer before I started high school. And the first time I really tried out the rollerblades, I decided to take them down a half pipe. (laughs) And this was literally the day before I started high school. Um, And needless to say, that experiment ended with road rash pretty severe from, like, the top of my, the back of my knees to, like, halfway up my bottom region. So that when I started high school, I could only walk like this. So that was my first real outing on rollerblades. Packed them away for a couple of years um, after that. And then the second time I decided to bust out the rollerblades was, I think my senior year, I fell into this cool crowd who was super into swearing and rollerblades. So (laughs) I got out the old rollerblades, dug them out of storage, and put them on. We decided to roller skate around this residential neighborhood like the cool kids that we were. And somehow I ended up at this intersection that was all downhill in every direction. And from everything I had learned from my roller skating experiences in the past, downhill was not the appropriate direction for me to go. Um, But somehow I ended up taking kind of a turn into the most downhill direction. And at the bottom of this short but steep hill was a T intersection. On the other side of the T intersection was a curb with a gravel path on the other side. And so somehow I ended up going down this intersection, rapidly increasing in speed because I never really learned how to stop or slow down, of course. Hit the curb, flew into the air, rolled down the gravel path, gathered a lot of, um, you know, bumps, bruises, scrapes, etc., Packed away the old rollerblades after that again for a long time, but for some reason just never really got rid of the rollerblades altogether. Took them with me to college, grad school, eventually to Washington, D.C. 
where I started my professional career after grad school. Kept them just packed away. I don't know why I brought them with me. I lived about a half mile from where I worked, and I would see all these cool-looking professional people rollerblading to and from work. And I thought, yeah, that would be an awesome transportation transportation method for me to get to work and back, you know? Um, So I thought, okay, there's this little park just up the block from me. It's got this long, flat stretch of sidewalk just going right down the middle of this park. Amazing. Perfect opportunity for me to hone my skills, learn how to slow down and or stop on the rollerblades, you know. Good skill to have for sidewalks where there might be pedestrians in Washington, D.C. So it's a fall day, a very nice weather fall weekend day. I decide to go down to this park and work on my rollerblading skills. I um, pack up my rollerblades, my wrist guard thingies, my knee thingies in case of accidents. I go down there, and there's this really nice, long, flat, just very even stretch. And it's, of course, a Washington, D.C. park on a beautiful fall afternoon, so it's super crowded. There's some kind of family reunion going on. I don't know. Tons of people there. So I bring my rollerblades down. I sit down at the beginning of this sidewalk put on my rollerblades, put on my wrist guards, put on my knee guard thingies, pull myself up, start down the little path. And there's people everywhere. There's a group of people about halfway down the, um, the sidewalk that I'm going down, a huge group of people congregating. So I start going down. I'm like, okay, I'll take it easy, you know. Learn how to use this brake thingy on here. But as soon as I start going, I start to realize this path is not actually even or flat. There's a slight incline occurring here that I really did not plan for. And I start picking up speed. (laughs) It happens slowly at first. And I think maybe I can still get a control of this situation. I start trying, you know, I don't know how many of you are familiar with rollerblades, but usually there's a little thingy on the back of one of them where you can kind of tilt your foot back and gain a little traction, slow yourself down. I don't really have enough balance to quite figure out that process yet. So I start doing kind of the awkward lady elbows in, forearms out, like (laughs) flailing situation, gaining speed towards this huge group of people who are blocking the entire sidewalk. And of course, on the other side of this huge group of people is a steep incline down, (laughs) curving around trees. So I'm uh, doing a pretty rapid assessment. It's one of those moments in your life where you're thinking... This is my moment, you know? I have to decide right now. My life is on the line. These people's lives are on the line. (laughs) Barreling towards them at increasing speeds. So I think, okay, 
My only option here, because realistically I'm not going to be able to operate these rollerblades enough to actually slow down or stop in time, so I decide to bail out. There's grass on, you know, on one side of me there's grass, on the other side there's trees and houses, so I decide to bail out on the right side. So I kind of point myself in the, in the right direction, but at this point I'm going so fast that when I hit the grass, I actually launch myself <laughs> into the air, and I'm, I'm still doing this thing. <laughs> so somehow when I finally land, I land kind of horizontally, and I roll like six or eight times. And I'm wearing this bright pink, super fuzzy sweater because it's, it's a it's a nice fall day, and I wanted to look fashionable for my fall rollerblading outing. So I'm gathering up leaves as I'm rolling about, and I finally stop rolling, and I'm lying on the ground, and I look up, and there's this huge group of people, and they're all just staring at me. And I'm like, okay. I'm so, I don't seem to have broken anything. So I stand up slowly, literally, this is a Washington, D.C. park on a beautiful fall afternoon. There's literally hundreds of people there, and they're all staring at me. So I stand up in my fuzzy pink sweater, and I start walking along the sidewalk on the grass in my rollerblades, clunking back to where my shoes are. And this lady who's walking her toddler down the sidewalk and she says to me, oh, my son saw you. And he said, oh, she, she got a boo-boo. <laughs> yeah, I got a boo-boo. <laughs> so I, I get back, and I put my shoes back on. I walk back home, and my roommate's sitting there on the deck. And I walk in, and she stops me as I'm walking in the door. And she says, hey, Emmy, um, why do you have so many leaves all over your back right now? Like, yeah, I had a little little snafu at the park. And uh, the next day, I turned in my rollerblades at the thrift store for good. And that's my rollerblading story. Thank you, Emmy. Bree. Bree Pren? Where are you at? All right, give it up for Bree. Preen? Bree Preen. I got it. Hi. So um, it was really hard to think of a story for this because there are so many. But <laughs> there's a, I decided that I, I wanted to talk about this story because it kind of highlights all the varying flavors of humiliation that you can get over the course of your life. So I was a freshman in high school. Yep, starts there. Um, and my high school didn't have a budget for things like advanced placement or any sort of accelerated programs. So their solution uh, for me was to just move me up grades in several of my classes and not offer like any early graduation or anything. You'll just get moved up and have fun. Uh, this did not go over exceedingly well with a lot of the 
upperclassmen in said classes. So I'm a freshman in the sophomore level English class, and the guy sitting behind me has taken serious personal offense at my presence, and uh, he just throws abuse at me at a daily basis, you know, starts out with insulting my looks, my perceived sexuality, my intelligence, or lack thereof, and gets just worse and worse. So um, that's humiliation number one. And it started out, you know, um, I, I, I started and I would offer funny quips or I would insult him back, and then it just wore me down to the point where I would just sit there and take it and just, like, turn in on myself while these horrible, hateful words are, are coming at me constantly on a daily basis. And, and that humiliation ta- tasted like self-loathing. You know, if I were f- uh, smarter, if I were really that smart, I would find the words that would get him to just shut up and leave me alone. I did not find those words. <laughs> Humiliation number two is when the girl in front of me has become so um, distracted by this constant wave of insults directed at me that she decides that she can't take it anymore. So she turns around in her seat looking, okay, so there she is, there I am, there's this guy, looks straight through me and literally offers to give him a blowjob if he'll just leave me alone. (laughs) Humiliation number two, that I'm apparently so pitiful that, uh, that I, you know, sexual favors need to be offered to get me out of this situation. Humiliation number three is that apparently making fun of me is more fun than getting blowjobs because he did not stop. <laughs> Humiliation number four is that the boy who I love in only the way that 14-year-old girls can love is three feet away for this entire thing, hearing, hearing all of this. So it just wears on me. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a heavy thing, and, and I can't, you know, just handle it anymore. And uh, I'm at my dad's house one night, and he just comes to tell me that dinner is ready, and I'm in my room just sobbing, like, can't function. And he finally gets the story out of me, you know. I've been keeping it all inside, and he gets the story out of me. The next day, my dad takes the morning off work so he can go into school with me and uh, take me into the vice principal's office to talk about this and do something. Humiliation number four is when the vice principal pulls in this boy and makes me tell him what his comments have done to me makes me tell him that uh, when he told me to go lie down in front of his driveway so he could back his car over me, has upset me for some strange reason. (laughs) And then he gets a warning, and the English teacher has to move his chair because the vice principal knows his family, and it's a good family. This humiliation tastes like the patriarchy. (laughs) And I have tasted it several times since then. So this was not a great time in my life. Um, Things, you know, I got fewer abuses hurled at me after that. But 
I was still a highly unpopular person because uh, I tattled on the popular boy who was using me as his verbal punching bag. So I was even more of a social pariah at that point. Fast forward a couple weeks to right before Valentine's Day, the winter uh, Valentine's Day dance is coming up. I don't have many prospects, (laughs) but I get... A dozen roses delivered to my front door, saying, from your secret admirer. And I am convinced that this is from that boy, that boy three feet away who I love with all my 14-year-old hormonal heart. And he is going to ask me to the winter formal, and it is going to be magic like they make Disney movies out of. But the next day passes, and the day and that day after that, and it's the Friday before the dance, and he hasn't asked me. And I'm flummoxed. Nobody's asked me. You know, nobody's come forward to claim these flowers to, to ask me to the dance. And so once again, I'm at home at my mom's house this time, and I am crying because I don't, I don't know what I'm, you know... Do I go, oh, do I do that terrible, horrifying thing and go to the dance dateless? Oh, who, who is this guy? And my mother asks me, do you really want to know? And I said, yes. And it was my dad. <laughs> yeah. And this humiliation tastes like adulthood and responsibility because after the initial heartbreak, my thought is my dad can never know that I know (laughs) because he never would have wanted to hurt me. He never would have wanted my mother to tell me. He would have wanted it to be, he wanted it to be this uplifting experience for me, you know? So to this day, my dad does not know that I know. (laughs) Uh, He brings it up occasionally you know, (laughs) oh, did you, in that dad way, oh, did you ever figure out who sent you those, (laughs) sent you those flowers? Did anybody ever claim, (laughs) no, dad, maybe it was, uh, maybe it was Chaz, you know, he was always really shy, maybe, maybe it was just a girlfriend, Um, but, but to this day, my, my dad does not know that I know. One more humiliation for you, fast forward two and a half years, um, I'm out on a date with that guy three feet away. (laughs) All right. He takes me to see a live production of the Rocky Horror Show. Yeah, it was great. I'm all dussied up in my magenta outfit with my French maids. I'm looking real good, in case anybody was wondering. And I let him be the first one to get full-on second base in the front seat. Of my bright purple Plymouth neon. Forget what humiliation number we're on, but it ends with my car nose up in the ditch outside of his house. <laughs> and everybody in our small town knowing exactly went what on that night. And that humiliation tastes like triumph. <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks, Bree. Bree, I want you to do me a favor tomorrow at your convenience. Call your dad and tell him you love him because he is an amazing father. Uh, our next storyteller, Will uh, Sundance is his name. I just want you to know we, we, you got to keep it at five minutes, okay? So put your hands together for Will Sundance. Hey. My embarrassing story happened when I was in high school. And I went to high school out in California when it was kind of okay to be gay. I never really had to come out. It was just kind of known. I mean... (laughs) It was like this, except I worked at Hot Topic. So my little pony was not... Nothing was off base. But I will never forget, um, my parents got divorced, and my dad had this friend that he was friends with, and she had fucked up kids. Like, it was this weird, like, oh, she's divorced. Her fourth husband, I'm sorry, fourth baby daddy, had hep C, and, like, the third kid was then finally getting um, child support payments from a person she didn't know as her father until the Thanksgiving before that because they were poor. So I thought, cool, my dad has a fucked up friend. He has a fucked up friends with, and all of the kids lined up with ages that were us, that were our ages. And so she had a daughter that was my age. And I never really had to come out. But she was all about, like, I can change him. I can change him. So, you know, we'd have this whole, like, how's it going? Like, she, when they'd come over to our house, we'd make out. Because I was like, well, I haven't declared anything yet. So, I mean, there's no, there's no reason to stick to anything yet. So about two weeks after this whole, like, innocent, like, my penis isn't getting erect when we're making out, like, I'm, I'm kind of putting the pieces together. And a couple weeks later, we go to Olive Garden, and my dad and this woman, who we assume is his friend, say they got married. So I'm like, oh, shit, like, we have to break up. We have to break up. I can't, I can't be making out with my sister, my new, my new stepsister, right? And so, yeah, when they told us at Olive Garden, don't, if you're gonna, if you're gonna merge families and your kids don't even know you're dating, don't tell them at a restaurant where, like, all of your emotionally unstable, fucked up kids are gonna flee to the restroom. And I remember her looking at me and she's all, so what does this mean for us? And I was like, and I'm just sitting across the table and I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't think this is gonna work anymore, you know? And she's all, well, God hates gays. And I'm all, well, I don't think he's too big on incest. (laughs) And the most humiliating part was the waitress that was literally walking behind. (laughs) And And I looked at this waitress, and I remember I was 15, and she was just like, these fucking kids are, like, talking about date, like, being gay and incest. What the fuck's going on? And I looked at her, and I looked at this waitress right in the fucking eye, and I said, yeah, I just broke up with my fucking sister. (laughs) It was kind of humiliating, but it really was a good story. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Sometimes those quick little ones are just really good. That was a great story. And give it up for Megan McGuire!
So this is by far the best story slam I've ever been to. And the bar has been set, yeah, uh, the bar has been set really high and I'm not going to meet it. So please lower your expectations. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in 10th grade, uh, Mr. Nolan was my English teacher. And having since done some teaching myself, um, I've developed a theory that the most popular teachers, at least most popular to their students, have kind of a cult of personality thing going on. And often, this involves humiliating your students to some extent, like in a loving manner, but to some extent. And uh, Mr. Nolan definitely had that going on. And um, he, on his desk, had a miniature football helmet that was referred to as the helmet that he would award to students for um, uh, spectacular acts of stupidity. <laughs> um, and I never received the helmet. Like, you might think that this was going there. But uh, <laughs> uh, times where I felt stupid in his class, like, stand out very vividly in my mind because I had a perpetual fear of the helmet, and I never wanted to get it. Um, so another feature of Mr. Nolan's English class uh, was that at the beginning of most classes, there would be a journal topic, and we would write in our journal for five minutes, and then we would discuss the topic. And one day, the journal topic was, is it ever morally acceptable to kill someone? And so I, like, you know, wrote in my journal for five minutes, and then the class is discussing it, and people are mentioning, um, like, the death penalty and the cost of imprisoning someone versus executing someone. Um, a lot of religious morality is coming up. But, like, no one has made the point that I made in my journal entry. And I feel very, like, strongly that this is a brilliant point. So... <laughs> So I raise my hand to share uh, what I've written. And um, as you may be able to tell, tell by my attire, uh, I'm a lifelong nerd. I'm wearing pie earrings right now to help emphasize this point. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! Um, so I proceed with my argument, uh, which is to talk about Gollum in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> And how Gandalf was very against killing Gollum, even though Gollum was a pretty bad dude. And Gollum ends up saving Middle-earth, and like Frodo was clearly not capable of casting the One Ring into Mount Doom. And if Gollum had not like bitten it off his finger and fallen into Mount Doom, like Middle-earth would have been doomed. <laughs> so I say this to my entire 10th grade English class. <laughs> and I don't have a very clear memory of Mr. Nolan's response, but like in my mind, it's basically just laughter. <laughs> and either way, however he responded, it was, it was very, dis it was like dismissive and like that is a crazy and, you know, silly response. Like, <laughs> be serious. <laughs> and I was serious. <laughs> and so... <laughs> And so upon receiving this feedback, like, two um, very strong emotions overcame me at that moment. And one of them was humiliation. And the second was the need to argue my point. <laughs> because, to, <laughs> because to this day, I still think that's a really solid argument. 
and I want it to be acknowledged. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. All right, real quick, we got time for one last storyteller. You got five minutes. Mandy, where are you at? No, just one. Mandy Miller, where are you at? All right, give it up for Mandy Miller. Hey, y'all. Okay, so this is 1990. I'm in my junior year at UW, and I decide that I'm going to go and do some independent study in North Africa. So I choose Tunisia. <laughs> so I have I grew up in northern Wisconsin. We eat a lot of casseroles. <laughs> we go to the fish fry. You know, so you, you feel where I'm coming from. I also had never been on an airplane. <laughs> and I'm just going to go live in Tunisia by myself. So there I go. Now I get there and I'm meeting people left and right because I love people and I'm meeting people and people are like, oh, come to my house. I will make you some food. And I'm like, awesome. I eat. I love to eat. Yeah, I'm coming. (laughs) Now remember the casseroles and such. Bland food. Well, now in Tunisia, things can get a little spicy. (laughs) And I was introduced to Harissa. You know Harissa? It's very spicy. But I'm like, yeah, this is the best. I love it. Whatever. So I'm I'm just eating to my heart's content. I'm just eating and eating and just having a great time. And then I'm like, okay, yep, see you tomorrow. Yep, yep, bye. I leave. I go home. And I'm laying in bed. And you know that feeling when... You got you to gotta fart, right? And you're like, yeah, I got this. Just like he was saying earlier. So I'm like, it was kind of rumbly, you know? All this new food. I'd been there like three days and I'm eating all this food. And so I, you know, made the mistake of farting. <laughs> and quickly realized that I actually shit myself. Full on shit my pants. Now I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking, well, what the hell am I going to, what do I do? What? I don't know. So I get up out of bed. Now I just have like underpants on because like, you know, you're in a t-shirt and underpants, like whatever. And I'm like, fuck. So I'm trying to walk to the bathroom without it falling on the floor. I get in the bathroom. Now the, now we got a whole other set of problems of, in front of us. So I didn't have any toilet paper because I was really trying to like do the Tunisian thing and like use this little hose that was there. So instead of toilet paper, a lot of Tunisians will use a hose to spray off after they've gone to the bathroom. And it's not it's not like easy shit like a bidet or something. It's like a high-pressured fucking fire hose. <laughs> now, I was pretty sure, like, I was really going to get into this. I was really going to try my best, you know, to, to work on this. But now, I'd been there, like, three days. So, didn't have a lot of practice. So, 
I'm like, well, you know, I take the shitty underpants off and I'm like, fuck, this is a mess. It's everywhere. I like set them in the bathtub. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm sitting over the toilet. Sorry, it's going to be some... I'm sitting over the toilet, but I didn't really want to sit on the toilet because I I was so full of shit. (laughs) So then I I get the hose, and it's on this side. It's on the left side. I'm not left-handed either, so this isn't helping. And I turn it on, and it just... I'm like, oh, yeah. Okay, well, if if I just sit low enough and I aim it down, we shouldn't have a problem, right? What foreseeable problem could there be? Let me tell you. Here I am, in position. I've got the hose. Fire hose, fast, fast. And I'm trying to spray. And I'm like, okay, ha-ha! Did I mention the water's really cold, too? So I'm like, okay, fucking A. All right. I'm like, okay, I think I'm pretty good. And then I'm like, okay, I'm super wet. And then I turn around. (laughs) You've got to be fucking kidding me. The whole wall was full of shit. Not just shit, but my shit. Uh, Yeah, so... Anyway, I, I had found out a few days prior to that that I shouldn't throw any of my um, trash out that I didn't want people to see because people would go through my trash. My neighbors. is <laughs> like, what is that American throwing away? So I'm like, oh, this ought to be good. <laughs> I'm not keeping these underpants. I'm not rinsing them out. Like, they're done. So I'm like, well, I can't throw them in my garbage. Because everybody's going to see that I shit my pants. <laughs> so <laughs> the next day I was planning to go on this train trip. So I double, triple, quadruple bagged up my shitty underpants and put them in my satchel <laughs> and rode on a plane with my shitty underpants. I mean, on the train with my shitty underpants for like four hours until I was well far away from my neighbors who couldn't see that I shit myself and then quietly disposed of them at a public restroom. And I think the moral of the story the moral of the story is is always always be certain that it's just a fart. (laughs) Thank you. Hey, that's going to be it for us today. You know what they say, never trust a fart. Thanks for listening to this episode. Again, our theme was humiliation. want to say thank you to all of our great storytellers and everybody who came out and supported us and supported them. You guys really do make Story Slam what it is. Another uh, thing that makes Story Slam what it is is our sponsorship from Ale Asylum. A huge thank you to them for supplying beer for uh, audience members and storytellers uh, really makes a huge difference for us. Next Story Slam is February 20th at the Wilmar Center. The theme is road trips. Come on out and tell a story. Have a beer. Um, So that's it for today. Thanks for listening. Hope you weren't too uh, embarrassed for anybody. See you next time.